27 years old. That was a long time ago. If you want to see where a kind of I was, you can take a look at that picture there. Um, uh, 27 years old, and uh, the pastor, Ed Morgan, was doing the year verse. He was doing it in January. They used to do it at the beginning of the calendar year back then rather than the beginning of the ministry year. And he had announced that he was going to be stepping down that year, 1980. So it was January, and he would step down later on. And what we didn't know is it would take over a year for us to find a replacement for Pastor Morgan. But, but his text that he chose, the year verse that he chose, it was spot on. It's Joshua 3, verse 5. Here it is. Joshua's speaking here, and he's talking to the Israelites, and he's getting them ready to enter into the promised land. They've seen God take them out of Egypt, cross through the Red Sea, and this is what Joshua said to them. He said, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. Don't look to the past. Tomorrow, the Lord will do wonders among you. I mean, the verse gave us what we needed at that point. It gave direction. That little phrase there, consecrate yourselves. In other words, set yourself apart spiritually. Prepare your faith, prepare your love, prepare your hope for what God is going to do. And it also gave us encouragement. For tomorrow, the Lord God will do wonders among you. God, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, forever. We didn't have to continually look back. We could look forward. Now, here we are. 2019, 40, some 40 years or so later. And we're in a similar situation. I'll be stepping down as senior pastor at the end of next July, summer 2020. And for all of us, me included, we need a text. We need direction. We need a word from God. And over the past several months during the summer, I was praying and reflecting, talking with people, discussing, getting input. And I believe we have such a word from God to us. It's found in the little New Testament book of 2 Timothy. So I invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 is the year verse for Stonehill 2019 to 2020. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. We can pull that verse down off there. We don't need that up quite yet. That 2 Timothy 4, 8 text, don't need up that, that quite yet. Um, I'm going to read the verse, verse 7, in its, in its paragraph, which is verses 3 through 7. Let me just make a few uh, brief comments on the book of 2 Timothy, if I may. You have before you here in 2 Timothy the last letter from the Apostle Paul. He's writing it in prison. Quite possibly, quite likely, he's in prison in Rome. He's been in prison before for his faith. And he's written letters from prison before. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. But he's always been released from prison. But this time is different. It feels different. 
And as he prays, he becomes confident. This, this, is, this is a different imprisonment. This one will end with my death. Later on in 2 Timothy, he writes this. Now we can put that chapter 4 verse up there. 2 Timothy 4 verse 8. Paul writes down at the end of the letter, notice the past tenses here. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race that God put out before me. I've kept the faith. And now, now as I look ahead, what's awaiting me? The prize awaits me. The crown of righteousness that will be given to me in the presence of Jesus Christ after death. Paul knows his time is up. And so he writes to Timothy in this letter. Timothy is his spiritual son and his successor. And he writes to Timothy to push forward, not give up, to live the faith that he had received from his mother and his grandmother, to take the gospel that he learned from Paul and live all of that, all of it, forward with courage. That, to me, is the key word, courage. What Paul is saying in 2 Timothy, and especially in verse one of, uh, uh, of, of, of verse one of chapter one, what he's saying is this: Timothy, he's saying, um, I want you to be faith courageous. I want you to be faith courageous. That's what he's going to argue for. Let me read to you verses three through uh, eight. Excuse me, seven of Second Timothy chapter one. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you, Timothy, constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, because you have this faith, I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is God's word. Father, speak to us as we look at this verse. Holy Spirit of God, bring Christ afresh into our hearts and into this place. For the sake of Jesus, amen. Ten days ago, I was driving to the office, and I remembered, it was Thursday, ten days ago, I remembered that that particular day was my grandson's very first day to go to school, very first day to get on a school bus. And so I had one of those moments of, you know, kind of like, you know, at the end of your life, you're going to say, man, I wish I spent more time in the office kind of thing. And I decided, in that case, no. So I drove the extra five minutes, and I saw my grandson get on the bus. Now, here he is before he gets on the bus, okay? 
And I mean, the thing about that, his name's Mathen. Oh, don't, no, not yet, not yet, not yet, please. Not yet. <laughs> the thing about that is that if you look at the picture, normally when Mathen's in a picture, his smile dominates the picture. But this picture is dominated by that backpack. Look at the size of the backpack. It's like the state of Rhode Island. It's just huge. I mean, if you strapped a backpack, a carpet one on me, it'd be the size of Texas. Just a massive thing. So the poor guy, when the bus comes, he gets on the bus and he's, uh, 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 getting up the steps. Here's the video. Watch him. Nothing. All right, now we can go. All right. Moral of the story. I don't want any of you to walk around in life with a pack like that on your back. Christ came to free us so that we could live and live with joy and live with liberty and live with release from all the stuff that weighs us down. In particular, I don't want to see any of you carrying a load of fear in your lives. It's easy for that to happen. Just bit by bit, day by day, get one more thing thrown into the pack on your back that weighs you down with anxiety, with worry, with fear. And especially in a year like this, a year for us as a church that will bring change. I mean, change just naturally carries with it all kinds of opportunities for anxiety and fretting and apprehension and worry and fear. Fear has a way of freezing our hearts, of freezing our wills. But this is a year... Above all years, what I would want to see, quite to the contrary, I would want to see us, all of us, serving Christ with all our heart, all our soul, all our skill, all our mind, all our intellect, all our personality, all in for Christ. I mean, what a gift to give to the next senior pastor of Stonehill Church, a church aflame, a church filled, overflowing with spiritual life and health, filled with people who are all in for Jesus. Now, that's the chief reason. That set of concerns, that wanting someone to be a fire, a flame in Jesus. That's why Paul is writing 2 Timothy. And in particular, that's why he's writing 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. He wants Timothy to be all in. He wants Timothy to be courageous. He wants Timothy to be strong. He wants Timothy to break free from all the fears that were holding him back. And I want each one of you to be all in, to be strong, to be faith courageous, and to break free from the fears that hold you back. And that is why 2 Timothy 1.7
is such a great verse for us this year. What I wanted to do today, we're going to take today and next Sunday to work on this verse. What I wanted to do today is to convince you in two ways of why this verse is so, so apt, fits so well with all of us this year. Two ways. Next, next week, I'll go even deeper. I'll talk about that later down at the end of the sermon. So here's the first way. I want to show you how Timothy's problem is our problem. Timothy had a very real problem. Actually, Timothy had several problems. Let me, let me march them out for you. Number one, Paul was leaving. Paul was going to die. And Paul meant so much to Timothy. Timothy meant so much to Paul. Paul had had a deep impact on Timothy. So to lose your mentor, to lose your leader, to lose your, your hero in the faith, this was hard for Timothy. Some people, if you look at verse 4, some people will read verse 4, and I tend to agree with them. Some people read verse 4 as referencing the great sorrow that Timothy had when Paul said goodbye to him the last time. Verse 4, as I remember your tears, Paul writes, I long to see you. you. You may be longing to see me. That's why you cried. You wouldn't see me anymore. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. That was Paul's, excuse me, Timothy's first problem. Paul was leaving. But secondly, on top of that, the gospel in the area where Timothy was serving was at risk. And Paul wasn't there. Timothy was in Ephesus when he received this letter. Ephesus was a city uh, on the western end, right on the coast back then, of Turkey, we would call it today. Back then they called it Asia. A city in Asia. And so much had happened in Asia with the gospel. I mean, in town after town, people turned to Christ. Lives were changed. Churches were planted. Communities were impacted. Here's a taste. This gives you a taste. This verse, Acts 19, verse 20. Uh, this is in the middle of kind of Luke's narrative in the, in the book of Acts of all that was going on in Asia. And here's what he writes. Paul continued to preach and teach in Ephesus, where Timothy was. For two years, wouldn't that be great to have Paul, your, kind of your leader for two years? Two years, so that, get this, the residents of Asia, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Gentile. Wow. Wouldn't it be great to be able to say that all the people who live in Mercer County, in central Jersey, heard the good news of Jesus? I mean, that's what Luke's saying. So much was happening. So many people were coming to faith in Christ. And Timothy was part of all that. He had a thrilling ringside seat to it all. He was Paul's co-worker in the middle of all this. But now, things have changed. Look at verse 15 of chapter 1. Timothy... You are aware that all who are in Asia have turned away from me. Uh, the churches are at risk. The gospel is in peril. 
Christians are in a, 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 a tough situation. When, when Paul says there that all, I think he's referring to all, all the leaders. But there's, there's something going on. There's gospel drift. There's, there's breaking down of leadership. The gospel is at risk. And Timothy has to deal with that because Paul's not there. And in fact, Paul's going to die. This is a big problem for Timothy. And Paul will talk about it time and again in 2 Timothy. But those two problems are not the real problems that I want to focus on. There's a third problem. The third problem had to do not with the externals, but with what was inside Timothy himself. Timothy struggled with fear. He struggled with a particular kind of fear. Verse 7a, Paul writes, Timothy, God gave us a spirit not of fear. Now, you don't say something like that if there's no reason to say it. In other words, I'm not going to tell you, hey, watch out for the red light if you're not driving a car and approaching an intersection, right? I mean, the situation calls for the statement. Same thing here. The situation calls for the statement. Timothy is struggling with fear and Paul has to speak to that. We see Timothy's struggle with fear elsewhere in the New Testament. I'm just going to show you one indicator of it. It's over at the end of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 10. So Paul is winding down this, this wonderfully rich and complex letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to them. And he's making kind of final comments, different people. And he's making here actually travel arrangements for Timothy, who's going to go visit the church there in Corinth. And he writes, when Timothy comes, don't intimidate him. Make sure he is without cause for fear. Now, again, the situation calls for the comment. Paul realizes that Timothy, in going to Corinth, could have reason for fear. And he's saying, I want, I want you to serve Timothy by making sure that he doesn't give in to that struggle of his. Coming back to 2 Timothy chapter 1, when Paul writes, God gave us a spirit not of fear, he uses a particular word. He has a particular kind of fear in mind the kind of fear that Timothy struggled with. Uh, there's a very common word for fear in the New Testament. It's the word from which we get our word phobia, you know, acrophobia, fear of height, agoraphobia, fear of being in public, that kind of stuff. Paul doesn't use that word here. He uses a different word. In fact, this is the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. A related word comes up a couple times in the Gospels. Let's take a look at one of them, Mark chapter 4. Jesus is in a boat with the disciples. There's a vicious storm on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is asleep in the boat they, the disciples wake him up and uh, he, he, he rouses, comes out of his sleep and he says, why are you all so afraid? 
do you still have no faith in who I am? Is his idea. And the word there, why are you so afraid? That's, that's a related word to the word used in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Now, what's interesting? Uh, let me use this illustration to make the point I'm about to state. Have you ever gone to like a paint store? And you go into the paint store and there are all these, there's like a rack with all these paint strips, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of paint strips. And so let's say you want to paint your room golden yellow. There's, there's a paint strip with like seven different shades of golden yellow. You know, one's a little bit grayer, one has a little bit more orange in it, maybe one, another one's a little bit cooler with some blue in it. So you get this paint strip, and there, there are all the golden yellows all nuanced out for you. Believe it or not, there are some scholars who, with no financial benefit to be had, have taken the words of the New Testament and they, they, they've gathered together all the synonyms, all the words that mean almost the same thing, and they've arranged them out and they've nuanced them out. This one has a little bit more gray. This one has a little bit more orange. This one has a little bit more blue. This one has a little bit more of uh, psychology in it. This one has a little bit more of objective problems for fear, that, that kind of thing. Well, they've done that with these words for fear. And here, here is the core meaning, the core sense of the particular word that's used in Mark 4 and a cognate over in 2 Timothy chapter 1. The fear in view is a state of fear not because of intimidating circumstances, not because there's a monster breathing down your neck. It's because of a lack of moral strength. We might put it a, a state of fear because of a lack of faith strength. And so when you return to Mark 4 and the, and the scene on the boat, here's the way one translation, the Net Bible puts it. Jesus says to them, why are you cowardly? Do you still have no faith in who I am? Cowardly. We don't like that word. We don't like to call people cowards. And we don't like people to call us cowards. It's the kind of word we just don't like. But actually, it's the word that captures best in English. The sense of what Paul is saying to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Timothy, God did not give to us a spirit of cowardice, of weak faith strength. Paul could say the same thing of all of us. Being faith courageous is not natural. We are not born courageous. I mean, when we're born, when we come out of the womb and we're crying. You know, and then the, the first six or eight weeks of life God's given to little babies is what they call the startle reflex. You know, anything that frightens a child, the baby goes like this, you know, like that. See, I don't know how many times when my kids were little, I say, 
Why are you doing that? I'm just trying to change your diaper. You're, you're frightened about the wrong thing. Cowards. Poet, writer, civil rights leader Maya Angelou, in reflecting upon her mother and the biggest thing that her mother gave to her, she wrote this. She said it was courage that her mother gave to her. One isn't born with courage. One develops it. We're all timid and cowards by nature. One way you develop it is just by walking through it. John Wayne, let's get John Wayne on courage. Courage, John Wayne, you know, Westerns, right? Those of you maybe in this generation don't know him, big actor for Westerns, okay? Courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. Honestly, I like that quotation because it captures exactly what Jesus did for us. Don't minimize what to Jesus was the, the, the shame and the burden of the cross. The night before he was crucified, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed with such intensity that his sweat had blood in it. And, and he prayed, what was the focus of his prayer was a desire he had, Jesus of Nazareth, a desire he had not to have to go through what was going to happen to him. Crucifixion, separation, judgment from God, condemnation of us put on him. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But Jesus, and I'm going to, I don't mean this disrespectfully, Jesus saddled up anyway. He shouldered the cross. He walked through it. Praise be his name. He died. He rose again. And the reason that we're here, the reason that Paul can write to Timothy, the reason we don't have to be locked into a spirit of cowardice is because Jesus has rescued us from that. Jesus himself saddled up and did what was necessary so that we could be free. Saddle up, Timothy, Paul's saying. That spirit that you have, that spirit of cowardice, it's not from God. Saddle up, brothers and sisters. That spirit of cowardice, those fears that you and I have about living our faith in these difficult difficult days the fears that you have about uh, telling your friends your co-workers the truth about your love for Jesus the fears that you have about admitting to someone your your struggles with sin or in your heart God is bigger than all those fears I'm not trying to say that Living faith courageous lives is easy. I mean, there are so many pressures pushing us to settle for what's easy, for what's convenient, for what feels good, for what won't make waves, pushing us to settle for all those kinds of things rather than pushing us to settle for what's true and right and godly. I mean, what are the fears that you have? 
What are the fears that hold you back from being all in, all in for Jesus? All in. Fear of loss, loss of something, some experience, some person, fear of loss. Fear of rejection, people laughing at you, people making fun of you, you're not being in the in crowd. Fear of not being able to do something perfectly. Fear of being isolated. What's your fear? George Barna is the founder of the Barna Group, which is the leading research firm in the U.S. when it comes to matters of faith and culture. And Barna writes this, picking up on these themes of, of fears, cowardice, and courage. He writes this, Research indicates that most Christians in America settle for less than the best that God has for them. Less than the best. We settle for half-truths. We settle for unbiblical worldviews. We settle for a mundane life rather than the transformed life that Christ offers us. Shame on us. These conditions will only improve when you and I have the courage to face our own issues and deal with them appropriately. We have the courage to face him. Paul is calling Timothy to account in that first half of verse 7. He's saying, Timothy, that cowardice, that lack of moral courage, that failure to live faith courageous, it's not from God. It's not from God. Now, what do we do? Well, you can do a couple things, one down at the end, but l let, me, let me show you secondly, in order to answer that question, what do we do? Let me show you secondly how Paul's solution for Timothy is our solution. Paul gives to Timothy a solution here. It's the second half of verse 7. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. There he is. God's given something better. Actually, God's given someone better, is what I'm going to argue. Because I, make, I, I think it makes best sense to read verses 6 and 7 of the text here, which go together, those two verses, to read those two verses as talking about the Holy Spirit. God's great gift to every single person who trusts Christ. And I'm going to, in just a minute or two, I'm going to read those verses in a way that brings that out, that shows you how the sense flows, reading it about the Holy Spirit as the gift from God. But before I do that, let me just make one key comment, kind of the strategic comment that helps you see why I'm reading it this way, or one of the reasons why I'm reading it this way, probably the most important. In verse 6, if you look at the text, Paul says, For this reason I remind you, Timothy, to fan, fan into flame the gift of God. Now let's stop there with that phrase, the gift of God. 
The word gift there has the idea of grace gift, undeserved gift. It's the word from which we get our word charisma. And that word is often used in the New Testament to, to speak about spiritual gifts. The gift of the Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit. Gifts you know, listed out for us, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 12 or in Romans 12 or in 1 Peter 4. Different texts list, list different spiritual gifts. And so people will read this text to say, well, Timothy, I want to remind you about the particular spiritual gift that you have. Maybe it was a gift of leadership. Maybe it was a gift of words of insight or a gift of prophecy. I, you know, but here's the thing. When you take that phrase itself, the, word, the gift of God, notice it's the gift of God. It's not the phrase, the gift of the Spirit. Paul uses that phrase, the gift of God, only one other time in the New Testament. Here's the phrase, here's the text. Romans 6, 23. The gift of God, the charisma of God, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Parenthetically, let me just stop here and say if there's anyone here who has not yet received this gift, this is the greatest gift that God has and could ever give to you. And simple faith in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior opening your life to Him, that's the greatest gift from God. Eternal life will be yours. Do it. But carrying on, notice here that the gift of God, the phrase is not being used to describe some particular gift. As important as it is, as valuable as it is, this is much more comprehensive. This is like overarching. And I'm arguing the same thing over here in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul's using this phrase in a much more comprehensive way. He's not using it to describe a particular spiritual gift. Instead, he's using it to, to describe, to talk about the one who gives those spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit himself. That is the gift of God to every follower of Jesus the Messiah. The Holy Spirit who indwells us, who's given to us freely and fully. What a gift. In fact, if you look at the text, verse 7, isn't that really what Paul's saying? He, he's talking about the Spirit. I take verse 7 to have capital S's and not small S's. So it all flows of a peace. God's given to us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not a spirit who generates cowardice. The Holy Spirit is instead a spirit that brings about power and love and self-control. So let me now read verses 6 and 7 in a way that kind of captures all this and, and, and some other things as well. In what I call Pastor Matt's exploded translation, where, I mean, I take, I take what... 30 words and make them 100 to capture all the nuances and all that's going on. Here's my exploded translation of verses 6 and 7 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Because of your genuine faith in Christ, Timothy, I remind you to keep fanning into flame the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
The Spirit is God's grace gift to you. And I'll add them to all Christians. In your case, you received it the way others did in the early years of the church. You received it when I placed my hands on you at your conversion and prayed for you. And so it was. At that moment, you were given the Holy Spirit. And so now, surely you know that the Spirit God gave you is not some spirit of cowardice. No, not at all. The Spirit God gave you is the spirit of moral power and of Christ-like love and of clear thinking. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul's solution for Timothy's cowardice is our solution by the grace of God. We have the same spirit within us. We have the same spirit among us in assembly. We have the spirit of God who, if we will work with him, will give us the moral courage and the Christ-like love and the clear-eyed discernment that we need to live faith courageous in the year ahead. Those outside need us to live this way. Those inside need us to live this way. You need me to live this way. I need you to live this way. Next week, I'm going to give to you, working with the second half of verse 7, I'm going to give to you a three-part model of living faith-courageous lives in these days filled with so much fear. But what I want to do to close things up this morning is to pray and to pray a prayer of confession To live faith-courageous lives begins with the courageous act of openly admitting weakness, failure, sin, of owning, in this case, the word cowardice. We've all been faith cowards. Peter, in the Gospels, When Jesus was being crucified, Peter was a faith coward. But God restores, Christ forgives. We've all sinned, we've all been cowards. We've all lacked, as Paul writes here, the power and love and self-control. And so as a way to admit, I've been a faith coward, to admit it before myself, before all of you, the way for you to admit to yourself, to all of us, before God, I'm going to ask you to kneel with me and to pray a prayer of confession, acknowledging before God our lack of faith courage. So I'm going to come down front and pray. If you want to join me in this and make this, this, this confession, this admission, you kneel where you are, if you're able, kneel with me. Let's pray.
Father God, almighty, all-knowing, all-merciful, in the name of Jesus Christ, we admit our sins. And in particular, we confess that we are fearful about the wrong things. We act like faith cowards, not having the moral strength to speak and to live and to do what we, what we know you want us to do. Forgive us of our cowardice. Wash us clean from our weakness. Give us the spirit of Jesus, the one who with courage shouldered the cross, died in our place, and rose to give us new life. By that new life, by his spirit, grant us the courage to live the truth, Grant us to love, to speak that truth compassionately. Grant us the wisdom to know when to speak and when to act and when to stay quiet. We need this courage, especially in these days. And so we pray based upon the the assurance of 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. And we pray, above all, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.